Welcome to Cheek by Giles podcast. Not true, but useful. This is episode five, Words Grown False. Hi, I'm your host, Lucy Dawkins, and in this podcast, I'll be taking you behind the scenes with Declan Donnellan and Nick Ormerod, the director-designer duo behind Cheek by Jowl, a theatre company which, over the last 40 years, has performed in over 400 cities across six continents. They're going to be sharing with us their philosophy about what is not true, but useful for making theatre. And we're recording this episode 100 miles apart from across the coronavirus lockdown. So hello, Declan and Nick. Hello, hello Lucy. Lucy. So Nick, our first question today is for you. How are you distracting yourself in this week of the lockdown? What's on your quarantine reading list? Maigret by Simenon, which is a wonderful, fascinating detective story, which I hadn't known about. And he takes you in each of the different stories, which is like a short novel, he takes you fully into another world. And he sort of, and through him, you sort of absorb these different worlds, which are fascinating. Brilliant. Have you ever been tempted to adapt it for the stage? Well, again, I think they're very subjective. And again, I can't imagine them on stage. They're much more filmic in, in a sense. Simonot is um, an extraordinary writer. There are two things for it that I think are inspiring to me as a director and, and puts a bit of lead in my pencil. And one is the fact that he suspends all moral judgment so that um, for as long as he possibly can, he doesn't divide the world into good guys and bad guys. He keeps himself morally neutral for as long as possible but normally he's in a world where people are hurling insults at each other and there's nearly always a background of a very judgmental press the second thing though that's quite inspiring about Maigret as a director is that he maintains his own ignorance which is really important he keeps on remembering that he doesn't know and um, you find it very difficult um, particularly when we're young to understand that our wisdom is very much connected to our capacity to understand that we don't know. And it's, you know, they're detective novels. They don't parade as grand literature, but that's deceptively alive. And how did you end up getting on with the book you were talking about in last week's episode on quantum physics? Well, I got to the end of the book. I don't pretend to understand even... 20% of it, but it was fascinating at the time. I think the point of quantum physics is that you you can't really understand. You sort of get used to it, and each time you come back, you you kind of start to accept it more, don't you think? Yes, and uh, occasionally you read sentences in this particular book, and you think, that's astonishing. It's about acting. It's really weird. It's weird. So what tips can you share with us from the quantum school of acting? Oh, so I was saying, you know, a living living organism is is one that... um, um, maintains its own existence by being in perpetual contact with the outside world. So many things don't exist until they come into contact with something else. That's pretty good for an actor. But I love the idea that the living thing has to maintain its own existence. It needs to be in connection with things. So the coronavirus is a challenge because um, we have to limit the contact that we have in, in a way and learn to make new contacts. But we have to be in contact. to maintain. It's fascinating to maintain your own existence. So for this week's topic, we're going to be expanding on an idea which we've touched on in previous episodes, which is that words can be treacherous. And the title of today's episode is Nick from Feste in Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, when he says, Words are grown so false, I am loath to prove reason with them. So, Declan, what is the problem with words? 
Why do they grow false sometimes? One of the problems with words is that they come from the logical part of the brain, and that should be fine, except for the fact that the logical part of the brain wants to take over the entire brain and convince us that only logic exists. A temporary and useful map of the brain, a rather primitive map of the brain, which is not true but useful, is that you'll see that there are two hemispheres. The left hemisphere appears to be the control center for logic, analysis, principles, and words. So these things tend to be the domain of the left hemisphere. But there are other things in the right hemisphere that are the domain of the right hemisphere. It gives us intuition. It's the only part of the brain that can make an encounter with a new idea. Um, so if it weren't for the right part of the brain, the left part of the brain would be sterile. The important thing about the right side of the brain is, although the left side gives us principle, only the right side can give us responsibility. The, the, the left side might give us analytical intelligence and cleverness, but only the right-hand side of the brain, I think, can give us common sense. We're all born with this, the fact that the left-hand side of the brain wants to take over. So it's not a neutral set of circumstances. Oh, I've got the left-hand side of the brain that's giving me analysis. Oh, I've got the right-hand side of the brain encountering new ideas. Isn't that fine and dandy? No. <laughs> It's not circumstances. It's a bloody predicament. And the reason it's a predicament is that the left-hand side of the brain always wants to take over. The problem is that we should always remember, and I can come back to this again and again and again, that logic's not your friend. Logic is a servant. But logic will quickly get the upper hand. And that's how logic marches a fellow into Desdemona's bedroom. He doesn't tumble into the madness of Dionysus. He tumbles into the far scarier madness of Apollo that you know chaos is bad but a superflux of reason is um, just as dangerous and farce it's not just sinister I mean farce is very fun or Basil Fawlty you know in Fawlty Towers you know he gets very often kidnapped by some logical deduction and you follow the logic and, and it's incredibly funny when you're not going to end the world it's not so funny when a fellow marches into Esdemona's bedroom but it's the same logic but we need logic but it's dangerous, but we need it. <laughs> it's good servant, bad master. So are words a problem because they are the ambassadors of this controlling left-hand side of the brain? Every word is a Trojan horse for logic. You take in the word, but actually a whole logical way of thinking about the universe spills out and takes things over. It's a very important thing to realise that words, that words actually are treacherous. They have another agenda they don't really want us to admit of a world that's intuitive or in a way that opens um, us to a new idea that world of logic analysis is essentially conservative it keeps us within a closed system this ties in with the fact that there are many things that you simply can't explain and if you do explain them you, you've kind of betrayed something very precious in yourself because you distort them when you explain them um, and so we have to be careful. And you can see it played out. So Constance's great line in King John, grief fills the room up of my absent child, seeks to share all sorts of things around the words, that the words aren't said, things that are missing, things that are alluded to, to fill up the room of my, and room sounds like womb, to fill something up with something that's absent. And it puts you into touch with something that's very enormous that we share, but for which there are no words. But if you actually see grief fills up the room of my absent child, paraphrased in English, it becomes banal because we reduce it to just swapping fact. 
there's a great danger to think of Shakespeare and a great writer that these are great plots, great stories, rattling good thrillers, but they have been bound up in poetry. And if you could sort of strip off the poetry, you'd be just fine and dandy and you'd expose the great thriller plots that are the plays. You know, and sometimes there are enthusiastic school teachers who want to start their children off doing that, and maybe that's a very good thing. And there are all sorts of first steps that one has to do. But at the end of the day, Macbeth is far more than the, the plot of a thriller. Macbeth is about many enormous things, many of which are mysterious and, and cannot be explained, which defy explanation. But although they can't be explained, the things that can't be explained are the most important things that we share. Could you talk more about that? Do you mean that there's something else going on in Macbeth underneath the literal meaning of the words? The thing is, you know, if I say to you, which is true, it's a lovely day, Lucy, it's not really about the day. It's about the fact that I want to share something with you. Within it, there's a gesture of control. So I'd like you to think that I'm happy or that I'm well-intentioned or that I'm optimistic. But whatever we're doing seeks to control. Now, unfortunately, linguistically now, control means a bad thing. But it can be absolutely full of love. The mother reassuring the baby and saying you're completely safe and rocking the baby in their arms. There is a control in it. And control's absolutely fine, but mostly as long as it's open and we have a moral compass and we're, we're aware of what we're doing. But the reason I'm banging on about this is that we mustn't think that words are somehow innocent descriptions. Because if I say to you it's a lovely day, it's not an innocent description of the day. Well, innocent's another loaded word. It's something between you and me. So would you say that speaking words is part of the human attempt to control the environment around us? Yeah, every word is used to change the outside world. No word describes our internal state. Every word is to do with changing the outside world. And any change implies some degree of control. Sometimes we like to think that things are neutral, but one of our problems is that there's, there's not really anything that's neutral. As soon as you say something, you've announced a, a relationship or you, you've announced something that isn't just to do with the word. It's certainly got nothing to do with perfectly formulating a thought. And, and you know, if, when I'm talking, I mean, you know, I'm talking to you now, Lucy, but if I think I'm perfectly formulating a thought, it's a perfect warning that I'm talking perfect bullshit because the real effort to communicate is kind of sweaty and imperfect. So I've heard you talk to actors about characters who anaesthetise themselves with words and use them as a drug to stop themselves feeling dread. Can you tell us some more about that? Many of the plays are about people who drug themselves with words. So, um, you know, in Three Sisters, for example, Vashinin drugs himself with a lot of very clever words and entertains us with um, fascinating philosophy, sort of fascinating sort of philosophy. But what's actually happening is that his um, kids, uh, he's left them at home with a suicidal mother. And that's a very bad thing to do. And I think Vashinin's daughters are um, absolutely central to the play of Three Sisters. The fact that they're kept carefully off the stage by adults who like to talk doesn't mean that they're not, in some respects, I'd say almost the principal characters. So do you reckon that's why Vashinin is talking so much, that it helps make the present moment more bearable for him, given the deeply uncomfortable underlying reality that he's betraying his family? Yeah, he's talking nicely to the doesn't because he just doesn't want to uh, acknowledge reality and he uses philosophizing and, and chattering to help him evade his responsibilities. But we see this with uh, Lady Macbeth and Macbeth who come out with all sorts of brave words and all sorts of brave ideas. But basically they're doing a shabby little 
murder. So Lady Macbeth wants to convince herself and to convince us that she is the star of some big melodrama in which she plays a kind of daring adventuress who will stop at nothing, who's brave and who can do deals with devils and creatures of the night. And it is really to distract her against her ordinary terror, her more ordinary terror that she shares with uh, the rest of humanity, that she's actually quite ordinary. And this connects all the major characters in the tragedies, funnily enough, with many characters in comedies as well. It's the frantic efforts that we use to keep ourselves away from the reality that we're all actually quite ordinary. But Lady Macbeth and Macbeth ignore it, um, very often by anaesthetizing themselves with what I'd call poetics, hokum, an unkind word is bullshit, that they're sort of very grand-sounding things that are actually designed to push off the scent. You know, if, if it's grand, it can't be bad. There's all sorts of ways that we use language to make something grubby sound less grubby and to kind of distract attention from them by the grand way we use it. I mean, Macbeth offers us a feast of those, but we see that all the time in politics are expressions like martial aid, Monroe Doctrine, Manifest Destiny, Terra Nulla, um, and unspeakable things now at the moment on, on television about um, calling a, the, the war against the coronavirus or whatever. There's a, there are ways of using words that elevate things so that we actually disexperience them. You know, that's a very important thing that all words not only convey the experience, but they also deaden the experience as well. So we need to keep a cold eye on how words work. Do you mean that all of the Macbeth's poetry and operatic language and these great flights of speech are all about the fact they're actually scared that they're not brave enough to do the murder? I, I have an expression which is pretend adult syndrome and you see it, you know, the daily briefing when the, um, you know, the cabinet rocks up and speaks into the microphone and... Um, then it makes me think, well, what is an adult? I suspect being an adult has, has to do with tolerating uncertainty, enduring ambivalence, and developing common sense and responsibility so that you can be responsible in your life. But the problem is that adult is not a state. There are no states. There are only processes. And being an adult is like a process you have to wake wake up into every day and i do think that these plays don't make a lot of sense if you just take for granted they're adults performing them i think um in a way there are no adults that we're just hoping that we'll make decisions that are more adult as we go along but really they don't make sense unless you think they're kids out of their depth there's something scary watching people who bite off more than they can chew. And that's sort of what the Macbeths do. They, they do a lot of, if you look at the imagery that they use at the beginning, they do a lot of, I'm so adult, I'm so grown up, I'm so me, man, you, woman. And But then they let the cat out of the bag when she says, it is the eye of childhood that fears the painted devil. And you go back in time to their childhoods. Or when she says, had he not resembled my father as he slept, I had done. It was that, that little girl, Lady Macbeth, who walked in and saw the mystery of her father sleeping. You, you feel their childhood coming up through. And at the end of that scene, when they say, the terrifying line of, what might we not perform upon the unguarded Duncan? It's like two kids speaking. My image of the play is always that there are two kids who dare each other to go into a haunted wood, and they go into the wood. And it gets darker and darker. Um, the night gets um, thicker and thicker. The trees start to lose their outline. The trees start to get bigger. They call to each other and they, their voices get fainter and fainter. They can't make out the shapes anymore and they get lost in the wood. It's like two kids who dared themselves into that wood. 
That's my image for Macbeth. So all these words that they're using to make themselves feel better and to egg each other on actually just have the effect of getting them even more lost. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're using words not to see the problem, but the problem's always there. And that's why they have to use so many words to keep shielding themselves from this great big problem, which is that they don't want to do it because the right part of the brain, the, the, the part of the brain that gives them compassion, that has to be drowned out by the left-hand side of the brain. It's like um, MPs jeering behind their leader in the House of Commons. You have to drown out the argument. And that's what happens in their brain. And, and logic um, can jeer very, very loudly. It's like they're using words as a costume as part of this attempt to make themselves feel more adult and in control. Absolutely, yes. They, they enrobe themselves in high-sounding words. But we have to be terribly careful because all words tend to take us away from experience. So parents sometimes say, you have to teach your child the difference between right and wrong. Now, one of the things I notice and remember is that a child from a very early stage has a very strong, passionate sense of what's fair and what's not fair. But then it's kind of difficult to talk about fair and not fair because it's quite a lot of words. So we like to talk about justice. Now, justice is a great way of thinking about what's fair and what's not fair. But the real problem is that the thing that helps us thinking, like justice, um, sometimes can actually confuse us as to what's fair or not fair. And when Lincoln was trying to pass the bill that would outlaw slavery, there was a mass of talk about justice. There were lawyers for and lawyers against, and they were all arguing about justice. And um, one of the words that was bandied around a lot was liberty. It was the liberty of the individual to hold property, slaves, the liberty of the individual to transport property, slaves. And Lincoln exploded at the end and said, in frustration, because he couldn't get out of this ghastly prison that logic had built. And he was thinking, if this isn't wrong, nothing is wrong. And it was like a wonderful moment when he tore the nonsense of the logic apart. So that's an example that connects back to how words are dangerous, because we've invented lots of words to help us think about things, and sometimes they help us to think about things, and sometimes they can be used as a barrier to experiencing experience. So theories of justice can blind us to what is actually fair and what isn't fair. So to put it another way, words help us spin experience into kind of airy concepts, which have the inverse effect of actually taking us away from the living and breathing experience of the thing. Exactly. They can do. They can take us away from the thing itself. And you can see this wonderfully in Shakespeare. I think what's fascinating in Shakespeare is, is when Shakespeare knows very well there are no words, like he's meeting us across a grave or whatever, and he says, I've got no words. It's like when Lear is in the hovel, and he's had this grand life as king, and he's destitute and he's thrown out, and he's been humiliated and stripped of his grandiosity. But he's there in the hovel, and then suddenly there's Edgar, and he's with this unspeakably poor wretch who's shivering and unclothed, freezing his ass off in the cold. And it's like Leah's uncomfortably close to him, and he says, thou art the thing itself. And I love that expression because it's like Lear is suddenly overwhelmed by the carnal presence of a suffering uh, human being. What matters is he's actually struggling with the fact that experience does not fit itself into words and Lear's stuck in this hovel with this guy and he's got to sit with this image of the suffering and he, re he recognizes that he's part of the, of the system that allows this man to, to suffer like this. 
and there are no words. Lear is aware of the collapse of language. Words have let him down. There is no bloody word for explaining the carnal presence of life because words are anti-life and words are dead things. There's no such thing as a living word. Words are dead things that we use to try and bring us in connection to a living thing. So he sees the living organism and there's no word for it. And he says, thou art, and there's this collapse of verbiage. He says, thou art the thing itself. I also really love at the end of Richard III when he confronts his mother coming out of the castle on the way to the battlefield. And his mother says, I'm, I'm going to say something awful to you. And the first thing he does is he gets all the drummers to beat the drums as loudly as possible and drown her out so she can't be heard. That doesn't work. And she says, I'm still going to speak to you. And all he says is, so. That's the one line, is so. And this incredibly eloquent man who has spoken rings around us from the first second of the play does not have any words when he's faced with his mother telling him that she wishes he was never born. And he, run, he runs out of text. Yeah, that's wonderful. That so devastates me every time. It's awful. It is. I mean, life is at its best, really, when we run out of text. You know, when you can be silent with someone or something, you, you just run out of text. I'm not saying all text is bullshit. I'm not saying that at all. There are very important communications we have to make to each other. But we must understand that not everything can be communicated in words. Words are a very, very limited medium. That may be the best we've got, but they're limited. But words are particularly dangerous because they're all sent out from the side of the brain that wants to take over. I find it so refreshing to hear hear you speak like this because we're so used here in the UK particularly to revering Shakespeare as a sort of genius of words and the height of human expression but it sounds to me like you've got a different take on what makes him so exceptional which is that he absolutely understood that words were very limited and they're not about a perfect expression of our internal state but these imperfect tools for a character to battle against the world and the predicament in themselves and other characters and sometimes to run out of them and sometimes it's about the space between words but he knows that words are, are imperfect. Yeah, so people sometimes talk quite a lot of nonsense about the ineffable nobility of Othello and his verse. And when he goes to murder Desdemona with the lines, it is the cause, it is the cause of my soul. Let me not name it to you, you chase stars. And I think, oh, ineffable nobility, I don't know. He's, he's actually strangling a young woman whom he's brought hundreds of miles away from her friends and her family he's committing a horrible shabby little secret murder which he knows is shabby because he's frightened he'll be overheard by amelia and yet he kind of drugs himself um with hoker i mean bullshit's a better word he's bullshit that speech and he kind of needs to keep on upping the dose as he goes in because it, it wears off you know like all addicts a sign of addiction is you have to increase the dose and one of the reasons why her line, kill me tomorrow, let me live tonight, is so moving, in a way, what makes it moving is it's like a pinprick in the middle of this vast balloon, escape barrage balloon of, of bullshit. And that line kind of, in a funny way, kind of shames him linguistically, you know, that you don't need all those words to be a human being. So, no, we're quite wrong to say people are always talking bullshit, always talking trash. But um, when people go high, we ought to be a little bit suspicious and let some amber, if not red lights, go off in our imagination, thinking, why is this so complicated? So all these words are truly treacherous, as you say. They're hiding so many things beneath the surface. Yes, I think the, there's a word that's quite good to define and be a bit stiff on, which is irony. And some 
some people will say I hate irony, and I think I know what they mean. I think they mean they hate it where people are ironic and are using the double meaning of words to convey superiority, a sort of mocking humor. Um, and irony like that's often really disgusting, and I couldn't agree more. However, <laughs> the problem is that if irony is a word not meaning what it says, then every word that ever existed is ironic because no word can fully connect, can convey experience. Words are there to help us to convey experience, but experience can't be conveyed. So words are essentially, by that definition of the term, ironic. So we've reached the part of the episode where we do a deep dive into a scene with today's topic. And the scene we've chosen today is the very first scene of Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. And as always, the text of this scene is available in the podcast notes. And to quickly sum it up, in it we meet Orsino, who is an indolent aristocrat who fancies himself to be madly in love with the Duchess Olivia, who is refusing to return his advances. In this scene, he's waiting for one of his messengers to return from her latest chilly response and is passing the time by waxing lyrical on his torment and demanding his court to distract him with music and entertainment. And it starts with the words, if music be the food of love, play on, and is often quoted as a sublime piece of love poetry. But I suspect, given our conversation, Declan and Nick, that you have a different take on it. Why shouldn't we trust Orsino's words? It's, it actually defines... Um, what hokum is this speech really because it's got nothing to do with love it's got a lot to do with self-obsession it's got nothing to do with self-knowledge because self-obsession is a defense against self-knowledge if you knew himself better he wouldn't be talking like this it's got very little to do with love it would be very i'd be very scared to be olivia if you ended up marrying somebody like that who felt that that was the feelings that they had for you because it's it's all about him and he gets locked in himself. He kind of gets locked in a chamber with no, nothing but mirrors on the walls. And he uses art as a narcotic. He uses art as, a, as an escape from the misery of being himself. Whereas art doesn't offer us any escape. Art offers us an escape into the real world. Mind you, a dose of the real world would do Orsino an awful lot of good. And you know, the real world kind of comes in. It's just Cesario, which is neither man nor woman. And, and it really um, challenges him. And he starts to have a feeling that he actually starts to have feelings for somebody um, who's actually present and in front of him. So it's kind of bullshit, as you say, because he speaks as if he's an expert on love. And yet his own desires are evidently pretty opaque to him. He's convinced that Olivia is the one and only. And then he's confused to find himself readily falling in love with this handsome young man who appears out of nowhere. Well, I personally feel one shouldn't get to exaggerate the idea that Orsino might be gay or might be straight or is he confused between the two because it's a very kind of heteronormative normative modern thing to bring you know is he homosexual is he is he heterosexual it, the, a they wouldn't have particularly thought like that but his problem's much more serious than that I mean he just could do with a friend he could just do with anybody to anybody to hold him anybody to be present with him he can't have a relationship with anybody and and slowly by the end we hope that perhaps he can do that We've reached the final part of the episode, in which we answer questions that listeners have put to us. And if you would like to ask Declan and Nick a question, get in touch with us on Cheek by Jowl's social media, and we will try and answer it in a future episode. Today's question is, 
Does working with Shakespeare in translation illuminate it in new ways for you? And why do you choose to work in other languages so often? I'm going to pass this one to you first, Nick. What you realise after a bit is that the word is only a very small part of the experience. And um, with good actors, almost everything is, is expressed by the thought and the body. And the word is only a small part of the experience. People who come and see our performances in a foreign language quite often come up and say that they've given up on the certise and they just watch what happens on stage. That's wonderful. I mean, of course you lose in, in Shakespeare great language. But at the same time, sometimes you can even get more directly into the experience when you're not worried about the language. Sometimes in real life, it's important in real life, real life, I mean, not in the theatre. Um, it's um, quite important sometimes not to be distracted by the words and just sit back and think, you know, what, what are my other senses telling me? Because we so easily get whipped along by the words. And the words are such a tiny proportion of how we communicate. And I think if we've learned anything over the years, it's how uh, tiny, the relatively small importance of words. They are important, but they're not, they don't have this engulfing, I would say frightening, I would say dreadful importance that words are given in our culture, which um, overwhelms us. And, and there's so many lies, like, you know, um, in the beginning was the word, but well, there wasn't before the word that was breath, there was music, there was dance, there was all sorts of things before the word came along. And when we got asked about what's it like working in different languages, the problem is words at all, never mind whether they're Finnish or French or English, you know, it's it's the fact that people are, are reduced to trying to share things with these imperfect instruments, which um, are kind of going wrong. And could you tell us more about why you choose to work abroad with great English classics in translation so often? Because we've been doing it so long, so many of our closest friends are in, are in Moscow or in um, Paris or, or Madrid, all, all sorts of places where we have very intense strong relationships that go back a long long time and also particularly in russia we have we've been working with the same actors since the last millennium you know where we've known them and um we've grown old with some of them and that's where we're going to wrap up for today thank you so much declan and nick and i can't wait to talk more next week thank you lucy very much thank you thank you for listening to cheek by gel's podcast not true but useful if you're interested to find out more about the plays we discussed today, you can find links in the podcast notes to archive material on Cheek by Jell's website. In the meantime, do get in touch on social media if you have questions you'd like us to answer in the next episodes. I've been your host, Lucy Dawkins, and the music in this podcast was composed by Pavela Kimkin. Until next week. <laughs>